turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. And this morning I want to talk to you about authority from heaven questioned. Authority from heaven questioned is the name of the message. And there's an outline there in the bulletin for you. But I just want to read our verses for us and then we'll do a little introduction to uh, our message this morning. Matthew chapter 21 beginning in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where... Did it come from heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This morning, we want to talk about authority from heaven questioned talking about the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word authority brings a lot of power, a lot of um, privilege, you might say. It's a strong word. There's a lot of people in our society today that don't like authority. We see that in all the the, uh, protests going on. We saw some of them back in Washington, D.C. when we were there. A person with authority, remember, exercises control over other people, over the welfare of other people. Now, our society can't really operate very well without having some people, would you agree, in positions of authority. Uh, The alternative to that is anarchy. It's chaos. If you had no police, if you had no military, if you had no authority at all, it would just be chaos. We saw that years ago down in L.A., even in Oakland recently, with some of the rioting and uh, looting that went on. With the riots, the police, for whatever reason, pulled back and let the people do whatever they wanted, and they destroyed people's shops and basically hurt their own community. When we talk about authority, we have to remember that it deserves a sense of respect, even maybe a sense of fear sometimes. It denotes someone who rules, controls, or maybe even influences. Uh, When we speak of someone having authority, we speak of someone who is 
over other people. They're on top of other people as far as the food chain goes. They have a responsibility beyond the normal responsibility of everyday people. Some people in authority determine things. They decide things. They render judgments. They give people certain rights and privileges even. You think about examples of authority today, and we think of the home where God has clearly placed authority in the home with the father as the head of the home and mom and dad as parents within the home. Could you imagine a home without any authority? Or even in government, there are authorities. The police and those who govern over us. Recently, last couple of weeks I've been gone. I was back in Washington, D.C. And as I was studying this passage prior to me leaving, it seemed like everywhere I looked on this trip, I saw people of authority. Everywhere. From the time Sam dropped me off at the airport and I went in the airport, all of a sudden I had to show my ID. I had to yield to authority. I couldn't just walk on the plane. I had to give up my bag, surrender everything. They do the little whatever they do and send you on your way. And then you get to the ticket counter and, or the check-in, the gate, and you can't just walk on the plane. You've got to wait for the lady to call your little zone and you know, then you get on the plane. There's authority everywhere. Even on the plane, as I'm riding on the plane, in the beginning there's a video and it tells you you need to listen to those in authority, basically, is what it says. It doesn't use those words, but it says the stewardess or the steward is there and you need to kind of obey them. And if you don't, you're in big trouble. When I got off the plane, there was more authorities. When I got in the car, and we drove to Fort Belvoir, where they live. My daughter lives on the Army base there. We had to check in at the gate. I couldn't just go on there. Even though I was in a car with a military ID, and, and Crystal had a military ID, I didn't have any ID. So I had to surrender my ID to them, and they had to check it out and scan it and run it through their system and say, okay, he's okay, let him on. Everywhere you look, there's authority. When we went to D.C. a couple days, I mean, talk about authority. It's all over the place. There's police on every corner, Secret Service, FBI, Capitol Hill police. We had the privilege to go to the, the, the Capitol one day for a tour. And we went with my nephew and my son-in-law, both in the military. And so immediately the tour guide put us with a group of FBI people who worked with the FBI. And we had about 14 in our group. And so it was the Converses and the FBI. That's how they, they called the, 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 the name. And I thought, boy, this is going to be interesting. But as the guy began the tour around Capitol, he said, you know what, you need to listen to me and you need to pay attention. When I say don't touch anything, you're not allowed to touch it. It might look like a statue that you can touch, but don't touch it. If I say go there, you need to go there. And you see these people wielding authority all over the place. Even in school, in business, on your job, even in sports. When you're watching sports, who has the authority? The guy with the little black and white stripes, right? The referee. Everywhere you look, there's... In life, there's a level of authority that we have to deal with. People who have the power, the privilege, and the permission to set the rules and to determine the judgment and verdicts of those who don't keep the rules. But I'm here to tell you this morning that there's one, beloved, there's one who has all authority, all authority, above all other authorities. Remember one day we were driving on the base, and Will pointed out this huge house. And I said, you know, who is that? 
on the Navy Yard there. He said, oh, that's the, I don't know what you call him, the Commandant of the Marine Corps or whatever. I, I forget the, the name he used, but it's the top guy. And then there's a big house with a guy in the Navy that's the top guy. Just a picture of authority. Well, there's one who has a lot more authority than anything here on earth. Uh, Matthew says in in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said this, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All authority was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a pretty amazing claim to authority, wouldn't you say? It's an amazing claim to power, to permission, to right. And you know what? He demonstrated that throughout his ministry. He demonstrated who he was. Think back even through our study in Matthew, in Matthew 7, where it says there the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having what? Authority. He taught with authority. That meant he didn't stand up and quote a bunch of people. He did it on his own. He didn't have to say where he found these truths that he was teaching. They came from himself. He didn't quote some rabbi. Even the, the New Testament teachers, a lot of times, though, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they're always saying, well, it was said this, or we were taught this, because that's how their culture was. Everything was handed down. Everything was taught from somebody else. Well, Christ didn't do that. His authority came from within when he taught. He also had the authority to heal He had authority over disease. He had authority to forgive sin. In Matthew 9, we see where he healed the paralyzed man and he forgave his sin. And the multitude saw it and they glorified God. He even had authority, beloved, to cast out demons in Mark 1, 22. And they were astonished. What kind of man is this that he can do this? They said in verse 27... What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region around Galilee. He also had authority not only to teach whatever he wanted, he had authority to heal the sick and forgive sin, cast out demons, but he also had authority, John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to what? Become the children of God. Talk about authority. He had the authority to make children of God. He had authority to execute judgment, John 5, 27 says. And the reason he did is because it was given to him because he's the son of man. He had authority for his own resurrection. In John ten eighteen, it says, No one takes this life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And then he says this, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He had the authority over his own life to give it and to take it, to raise from the dead. He even had authority to give eternal life. Can you imagine that? John 17, 2 says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He's referring to himself. Now, he had so much authority, and he used that authority in such a way that the Jewish system had an issue with it. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had an issue with the authority of Christ. See, they believed they were the authority, (laughs) And they thought, who are you to come on here from, from this little town that you came from? And all of a sudden, you're, you're throwing this authority around. Where do you get it from? 
They had a very organized system of religion. They still do today. And everything had its place. And you didn't do one thing without asking somebody. It's even that way over there in the Middle East today. You go to some of the religious sites. I mean, some of the the sites that we went to, some of the the gals on the tour had sleeveless uh, tops on. And the person, when you go in there, they say, you've got to cover that up. And they'd give you a shawl and you've got to cover up. The authority. Because it doesn't fit in their, their culture. But you stop and think about Jesus. He never asked their permission for anything. He didn't ask them to approve the doctrine he was teaching. He didn't go to them and say, is it okay if I heal this guy? Is it okay if I cast out these demons? Is it okay that I make this judgment or this verdict? He didn't ask them who was going to be the children of God. He didn't ask them on advice on how to give eternal life to people. He totally ignored them. And the conflict that occurred there between Jesus and the religious leaders was over an issue of authority. Now, you have to understand the setting here, and we've been away from this for a couple weeks, so I'm just going to quickly kind of pack together what we've been through. Jesus had just concluded his Galilean ministry and in the, the Perean area there, and he crossed over the Jordan, he entered Jericho, he healed two blind men, you remember that, one Bartimaeus, he, he, Zacchaeus was saved, brought into the kingdom, and then he's in the midst of this procession that's going from Jericho up the hill to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now remember, this just teeming with people, a bunch of people following Jesus. Having arrived in the vicinity of the Jerusalem, he stayed in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that first Saturday night. He arrived on Saturday. On Sunday, he awoke in Bethany, kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, and the crowd from Jerusalem had heard that he was coming there, and so they came out from Jerusalem along with the crowd that was following him, and so he had all these people gathered in Bethany to see him. They knew that he was a miracle worker. They wanted to see what this Christ was about. They knew that one had just been risen from the dead, Lazarus. They wanted to go and check it out and see what was going on. So Sunday he spent with the multitude of the people there who had come out to visit him. On Monday he arose. Remember, this is the last week in the life of our Lord. On Monday he arose in the morning, and he sent the disciples out, do you remember, to find the colt and the, fowl, the donkey, and he brought them, and uh, they found them there, just in accord, as Zechariah said. And he made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. And as he went, the people threw palm branches and clothing, and they exclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. They hailed him as Messiah. That's what they did. It was his triumphal entry, you might call it. We think that, you know, we call it Palm Sunday. It didn't happen on a Sunday. It happened on a Monday. And they came in on that Monday, and the procession ultimately ended where? You remember? At the temple. And he returned that night, he looked around, and he went back to Bethany because there was probably no room to even stay within the, the city walls of Jerusalem because there were so many people there for the Passover. And so he was staying with his friends outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. So he went back there Monday night. Then he returned back on Tuesday. 
He awakened, he went back to the city, and this time he went right to the temple, directly into the temple. And when he came to the temple, he saw the, 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 the wickedness that was going on. All, remember, all the people were money-changing and selling animals and ripping people off. And it just really kind of ticked them off. <laughs> he had righteous anger. And they, the temple was infiltrated by all these religious leaders of Jesus' day. And they set up this, this system where they could make money off it. And when he had finished throwing them all out, which really made him mad, little boys began to sing hosannas and sing praises to him. And that even ticked them off more, the religious leaders. And when they see the temple being cleansed, and the cleansing, it kind of rips off their, their hypocritical mass, you might say. And people begin to see the falseness of their religion. And remember, the people were probably on Jesus' side because the people were the victims of this scam that was going on in the temple. They were the ones being ripped off. They would bring their lamb or whatever it was for sacrifice, and the religious leaders have a checkpoint. They say, oh, sorry, uh, that one has a, you know, a, a bad leg. You can't use that one. But we have one over here that you have to buy from us. And it was ten times the price. And then they would probably take that so-called defective lamb, circulate it through, and sell it again to somebody else. It was a real scam. So when Jesus went in there and kicked everybody out, a majority of the people were probably all for it. And in fear, these, these, these religious leaders that watched this happen just began to get infuriated. You know, they can't tolerate... False religion can't tolerate it when someone comes along and says, you know what, that's false. That's inerrant doctrine. That's wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that. I read a, a blog recently from someone, and, and they mentioned a certain preacher from Texas who's got a really, 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 really big church down there and a nice, bright, white, smiling thing, and he's got a new book out called Every Day Can Be Friday. Well, in the blog, he said, well, I'm not going to say that this man's a heretic, but he went on to explain everything that he teaches wrong. So I shot him back an email, and I said, well, if you won't say it, I will. Because he is. Boils down to the money. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day were faced with their hypocrisy being exposed, their false religion being exposed. And after cleansing the temple, he returns to Bethany that night. And most likely he spent it with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then it's Wednesday morning. Wednesday morning he goes back to the temple again. This time walking past a fig tree that he cursed the day before. And his disciples say, whoa, you cursed a fig tree and it's, still, it's dead. It's already dead. That's amazing. What a miracle. And he went on and he explained a little bit about that. And now he's confronted with the leaders and the people who were gathered there. It's almost as if he had to clean the temple out before he could even minister there. And in verse 23, you see this kind of confrontation coming on the horizon. 
And in this chapter, he's performed three basic symbolic actions that shows his authority. And we've seen these. The triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, and the cursing of the fig tree. Those were three things that kind of wielded his authority that said, look at me, I am the Messiah. I am who I claim to be. And today in our text, Jesus sets forth his authority by his first response to the religious leader's question. So let's look, first of all, at the Lord's authority. The Lord's authority. You can follow along there in your outline. In verse 23, it says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. They came up to him as he was teaching. Can you imagine someone just coming up here in the middle of the service while I'm teaching? That would be a little awkward. It would be a little odd. You just don't do something like that. Well, that's what they did. You have to understand who this group was. It says the priests and the elders. Well, who were these guys? Well, they were probably a pretty good group of people. One commentator says it could be 50, 60 people, men, that confronted Christ here in the temple as he's walking about teaching the people. They were probably religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, the Essenes. None of these people agree on anything. But isn't it interesting how when people can't agree on something, everybody can agree to be against Christ. Even today, right? I mean, you can get all sorts of different religions, and, and you know what? What are they? Oh, you know, they're going to talk about Jesus. They're, they're against Christ. They don't agree on anything themselves. But this Caiaphas may was, maybe was there. Annas, it was his kind of little temple bazaar there that they set up, so he was probably there. And they had a whole system of... of Authority set up within the priests. <clears throat> and each one was given certain, um, certain different uh, responsibilities. So we're probably talking about a group of 50, 60 people. Now, they question the legitimacy of his authority, the demand of the Jewish leaders. What, what was their demand? They questioned his authority is what they did specifically in reference to cleansing the temple. Why are you doing this? Who gave you the authority to teach this way? Who gave you the authority to come in here and and break up our money-making scheme? Who gave you the authority to even teach here? They wanted to know. They questioned the legitimacy of his authority. Now remember, when he came into the temple and he cleansed it, remember, we said that that is his turf. Remember? That's his father's house. And it, it, he was on his own turf when he did this. He's the Messiah. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He clearly has the authority to do what he's doing. But see, they didn't look for a Messiah. They weren't looking for a Messiah that came with a spiritual insight. They looked for somebody who was going to come and, and turn things around politically for them. That was going to free them from the bondage of Rome. Maybe help out with the economy. They were looking for a a purely, you might say, secular Messiah. Just as they are today, by the way. 
They're looking for somebody that's going to make all this problem in the Middle East go away. And you can tell how they're setting themselves up for the one who is going to come one day and is going to grant peace in the Middle East, that being the Antichrist himself. Their perfect stage is set perfectly for that to happen. And so here's Christ walking around teaching these people. The religious leaders come in this mob, kind of make their way right to the front, interrupt him. And they ask him a question. By what authority are you doing these things? See, they question the origin of his authority. He wasn't ordained. To be a priest, to be a rabbi, you had to be ordained. You had to go through the proper uh, training and schooling. You couldn't just march into the temple and start teaching. But this is what Christ always did. And so it really ticked them off. You say, well, what was he teaching? He was probably preaching the gospel. Luke chapter 20, verse 1 Parallel account says that he was preaching the gospel. And Mark chapter 11, verse 27, says that as he was teaching, he was walking around among the people. He was teaching things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And he probably talked about a lot of things. The Bible doesn't say what he talked about. He probably talked about grace, love, judgment, heaven, hell, the kingdom, salvation. Mercy. He probably talked about the emptiness of of self-man-made religion. He probably talked about the just the, the fallacy of being able to work your way into the kingdom of God. Maybe he talked about the narrow way, the narrow gate. I don't know what he talked about. But he definitely talked about the gospel. He talked about the kingdom of God. And he did this as he was walking around and they questioned him because they couldn't deny his authority. They'd seen it, clearly. They never really denied it. They just questioned it. They questioned the origin of it. But they couldn't deny it. The reason they couldn't deny it is because he had two kinds of authority. In the the Bible, there's, there's power and there's authority. He had both. He had power, which refers to his ability to command a crowd and speak with authority. People, when they listened to him, they just said, man, this is a man with authority. But he also had authority, which means he had the right to do it. A God-given right to teach what he was teaching. Jesus not only had great power, but he had the right to exercise that power. Because his power and his authority were not from an earthly source. They came from his heavenly Father. That's why in Matthew 18, verse, or Matthew 28, verse 18, when he says, all authority has been what? Given to me. He can say that. Because it was. It was given to him by his Father. Because Jesus had the Father's power and the Father's authority, he sought no human approval for what he did whatsoever. I mean, even within the church here, I mean, when we get together as elders, usually I'll give them a little schedule of what I'll be preaching on for the next couple of weeks or months. So they know. I'm not just up here making this stuff up every week. You know, I think I'll go in this direction. I'll think, I know there's a plan here. There's a purpose. But Christ didn't have to do any of that. 
because he had all that authority given to him. He had both the power and the right to do what he did. In John chapter 5, verse 8, he says, I do what the Father shows me to do, and that's exactly what I do. Nothing more, nothing less. He had God-given authority. Even back in John 2, when he went into the temple and cleansed it the first time, he cleared the place out. He didn't ask anybody permission. He didn't check in with the Sanhedrin and say, hey, you know, what are the rules here for temple cleansing? I'm going to go do it. No, he just did it. Because he didn't need to ask for permission. He just did the Father's will. I mean, that wasn't a a little thing to be doing back in that day. They have a lot of, you know, pride in their temple. They have a lot of pride in their religion and everything. And here comes this guy just coming in and cleaning the whole place out. They didn't appreciate that. They were really appalled because they didn't think that he had that kind of authority. So this brings us to a dilemma here with the Jewish leaders. I mean, they're really having a hard time with this. They're having issues with Christ doing this. And he says in verse 24, they ask him the question, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, and look at what he says. I also will ask you one question. So he answers their question with a proposal. And you say, well, what's he doing here? Is he avoiding the question? Is that what he's doing? (coughs) No, he's not. Matter of fact, if they'll answer the question that he asked, they'll have the answer to the question that they asked. It's rather simple. So they give him, he gives them a proposal. He says, I'm going to ask you a question. One question. And if you tell me the answer... I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Sounds fair. So you have this group of people, all these people surrounding them in the temple courtyard there. Probably hundreds, thousands of people. And then you have 50 of these, 60 of these religious leaders. And Jesus is there in the midst and they're in this confrontation. (coughs) And so he asks them this question. Verse 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? You say, well, that doesn't sound like a hard question. I'd probably get that right. But that brought them to a a real problem. (laughs) For the religious leaders, it, it brought them to, you might say, the crossroads Because remember who John was. John was who? John the Baptist was the predecessor to the Messiah. He was one of the last Old Testament prophets carried over into the new. And everybody, everybody who was anybody knew that John was a prophet. They just knew that. Because he demonstrated that over and over and over again. And so this question put them in a... Real dilemma. Because you've got to stop and you remember, they not only rejected John the Baptist, outright they rejected him, but they also rejected his message about Jesus. 
But now they're surrounded by all these people. And what was his message? John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says in verse 34 of John chapter 1, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah, folks. He's here. He's come. And John's message was, Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom is coming. The, 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 the Son of God is coming. And you know what? Now he's here. What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do about it? Well, there's no way they were going to accept that. Because they had rejected John's clear testimony. And if they rejected John's clear testimony, they weren't about to say, oh yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. So they had themselves in a real dilemma. And here's what the dilemma was. It says there in verse... uh, 25, basically, they call the timeout. You ever do that and you're playing a game or maybe football? I remember younger, we were playing football or whatever with, you know, just sandlot kind of stuff. And uh, something doesn't look right with the other team or we don't know what we're, oh, timeout, timeout. You know, and we all get together and huddle again and figure out, okay, why is that guy standing over there? Usually he's over there. And we'd figure out, try to figure out what they're doing as far as a play goes. Well, so the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders go, hey, wait, time out, Jesus. We're not, we're not going to answer your question just yet. <laughs> Give us a time out. And they got everybody together, literally. All these people that disagree among themselves, but they can agree on one thing. We want Jesus dead and gone. And they asked this. They got together and it says they discussed it among themselves. They had a little powwow. It says, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're surrounded by all these people who think that John was a prophet, and they're not going to like that. And they're going to think, well, you're the religious leaders. Can't you see that he's a prophet too? Why wouldn't you accept him as a prophet? That's silly. Everybody knows that John's a prophet. So they were in a dilemma. They had, a, they had an issue. They had to make a decision. So in verse 27, it says, so they answered Jesus. Now remember, this is the religious hierarchy of the whole society. All right? This is all the people that know everything about religion. And this is the best they can do, beloved. This is it. Look at their answer. Uh, we do not know. (laughs) I don't know, Jesus. Kind of silly. You know, that's what happens when unbelieving hearts try to investigate the truth. When unbelieving hearts try to embrace and investigate the truth, what happens is simply this. They've already made their mind up. It has no impact on them. Think about everything that the Pharisees and this religious people have seen. They saw Jesus raise people from the dead, heal the blind, forgive sin, cast out demons. All these things. And yet, it kind of just fell on deaf ears. It's like they were blinded. They didn't see it. So they say, we don't know. We're not going to answer your question. And he said to them, look at what he says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Their hearts, beloved, were so hard, even though they'd seen Jesus do things Incredible things over and over and over again. 
their hearts were so hardened to the truth that they just blatant, right out rejected it. I mean, that's a case right there that, you know what, God has to work in the human heart. It's not up to us to convince someone to come to Christ. I mean, we should plead, we should beg, we should do whatever we have to. But you know what? Ultimately, that relies in God's hands. And here's a perfect example. These religious leaders had their hearts hardened to the point where they couldn't even recognize the Messiah. He was standing right in front of them. See, they didn't discount the, the things that he did. They couldn't because they really happened. This wasn't like a shell game, you know. He wasn't like some of the religious people today on TV where they got all their little, you know, oil they're going to sell you. And, you know, they do this and they do that. And it's a, it's a big Ponzi scheme. That's not what this is about. Jesus actually did all these miracles right in front of them. And they saw it and they couldn't, they had no answer for it. And the people of Jesus' day concluded this must be the Messiah. Remember the, the, the blind guy that was healed? Remember him? And he went back to the religious leaders and he said, you know, I'm healed. And they were like, well, what authority does he, who is this that did it? He goes, I don't know. He goes, but if he healed my, my blindness, he must be from God. That's just common sense. Who else could do that? So they say, we don't know. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things either. You know the sad thing at this point in time? You can, you can draw a line right there in your Bible and say, you know what? Jesus doesn't speak to these religious leaders as far as revealing light to them ever again. That's it. They rejected him so long and so hard, he finally got to a point where he said, you know what? That's it. I'm not going to tell you anything more. It's over. What a, what a hard place to be at. If you stop and think about it, hearing the truth over and over and over again, seeing the truth with your own eyes in front of you, and yet rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it. The Bible says that God says there comes a, a point in time where he just turns the lights out. He says, I'm not going to give you any more light. I'm not going to reveal anything more to you. You're not going to see anything else. That's it. And from then on, the only thing you hear Jesus talking to these religious leaders about is judgment. That's it. Over and over and over again, that's all you hear. I mean, that's a, that's a, a scary place to get at. When you're at a place in your life where you've heard the truth and you've been exposed to the truth, and you've even seen the truth transform other people's lives. And there's no reason for it. You look at that, okay, this guy used to be a drunk or an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever. And, and now look at him. They're, they're, they're in the church. They're serving Christ. They're, the life has changed totally. What happened to them? Do you really think it's just kind of a, they wake up one day and say, oh, I'm just going to change. It's the power of God, beloved. It's God changing the human heart. And he wants that for all of us. But their decision there, in verse 27, reveals their own love of darkness. In John 3.19 it says, And this is the judgment. The light came into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. People don't like it when Jesus comes and sheds light on their life. It revealed their love for darkness, but it also condemned 
them to continue darkness. In John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You know, there's a point in time, God says, my spirit will not always strive with men. It's a point in time you reject the truth enough. And God just says, you know what, that's it. I've given you enough truth. And here it condemns them to continued darkness. So we see here this lordship of Christ himself. And then in verse 28, you say, wasn't this a new section? Well, yeah, but it goes right along with it. They're still standing there. He's still talking to them. I mean, there's no real break there, you might say. And so he turns to them and he says, what do you think? He's just saying, you know what? Let me ask you a question. You ask me a question and I ask you a question you want to answer. So let's, let's play this little game again. Let me ask you another question. And then he goes into a parable. And he says, a man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. But the second son said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Now, depending on what translation you have, they may be mixed around there. The first may be the second or the second. It doesn't matter. Okay? It's irrelevant. So the father has two sons, a vineyard. He's a farmer. He goes to the one son. He says, hey, go out there and plow the field. I'm not going to do it, Dad. But he changes his mind and he ends up doing it. The second son says, oh, okay, Dad, I'll take care of it. But he never does it. All right? Got it? Verse 31, here's the question. He says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Can you feel the eagerness of them when they answer this question? I mean, think about it. He's just painted them in a corner with a previous question. Now he answers a question, tells them a parable, he answers a question, and they're just listening to the parable like, oh, is this another trick? What's going to happen here? What, what, what are we going to say? And it's very obvious. Well, the first one, right? And they answer with with eagerness. Finally, Jesus asks us a question that we can answer. Because he was always asking them questions, but they always walked away scratching their head. Looking like a fool. Well, oh, sure, it's it's the first one, they said, with authority. Imagine they're all dressed up in their robes and their priestly garments and all this stuff, wielding their religious authority amongst the people, probably pushing their chest out. Oh, the first. And then Jesus lowers the boom on them. He says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, that's not something that is said lightly. You have to understand here, the first son, you see his rebellion, right? I'm not going to do it. But what's he do? He repents, right? He changes his mind. He thinks about it. "Ah, You know, I shouldn't treat dad this way. I'm going to go do what he wanted me to do. And the second son says, oh, I'll go do it. I'll go work in the field, dad. But his failed performance just shows that he wasn't sincere. Well, he relates that to them. 
he applies it to them. And they said, well, clearly the first son did the will of the father. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you're correct. But you know what? The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. What was he saying to them? I mean, can you imagine, you've got to look at those two groups of people. Tax collectors were at the bottom of the barrel. Okay, they were, they were Jewish people who basically turned on their own people, joined arms with Rome, and took money from their own people to benefit Rome and to benefit themselves. They just were not good people. Remember Matthew, right, was a tax collector who was converted and left everything. And it was a very prestigious position as far as monetary means goes because you made a lot of money, but everybody hated you. It's kind of like some of the, the people that, you know, these people are protesting against, these, these, these Wall Street people. I mean, these people make tons of money. But it doesn't seem like a lot of people like them right now, for whatever reason. So that's kind of the, the situation here. And then the, the prostitutes and the harlots, they were just the epitome of gross immorality. No one would want to be like that. Well, how's he applying this? He's telling them simply that, you know what? The first son represents the tax collectors, represents the harlots who, you know what? When I came to them, they were living lives of total debauchery. They were not being obedient. But you know what? They had a change of heart. They had a change of mind. Something happened that switched them into what they are today, and they've come to Christ. They recognized their own reprobate heart, the wickedness of their own ways, and they, they, they fell on the grace of God, and they realized that, you know what, there's no way I can save myself. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever Christ dealt with those people, He always gave them grace. Because they were at the bottom. They were already broken. They didn't need to be broken anymore. They were already ostracized from society. They had no hope of saving themselves. But when you come to the religious people, the hypocrites, they're dressed up in all their garb and everybody in society looks up to them and says, oh boy, that guy's really religious. Look at that, what he's got on. Or look at the hat that he's wearing. He follows that rabbi or he does this or he does that. He went to this school. On and on and on. And he condemns them. And that's the picture of the second son. See, you have to understand the Jewish people were given the word of God to protect it, to, to give it out to people. And what they did is they took it and they perverted it. They took the law of God and they made it into something that it wasn't. They made it into a taskmaster over the people. And they beat the people down with it. And then they looked at people that were down and out, the lame and the, the blind, and they said, oh, we can't have to do with them. They're, they're that way because they're sinners. So we, we can't go near them. They had no compassion on anybody. And yet here comes Christ and he's reaching out to these people. He's touching them. And, and it's just blowing these religious leaders' minds thinking that this guy has such authority. How can he walk over and, and pollute himself by touching this blind guy or this lame guy? We would never do that. You can just see their, their religiosity and their hypocrisy. They were trusting in something that they made themselves. And they were condemned by their hard hearts. And they refused. They refused to repent. And they refused to believe. He says, you know what? Truly, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to go into the kingdom of God before you. 
And that's not saying that they're going to be first in line. That's not saying that they're going in, you know, and then you're going to come in after. That's saying they're going in and you're not. That's what he's saying. The English doesn't really make it that clear, but that's what he's saying. He's telling them the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to heaven. You are not. He's condemning them. And for a religious person, that's just a hard pill to swallow. I remember before I was a believer, Catholic, grew up in the Catholic church, and went to church every Sunday, altar boy, mass, the whole thing. Communion. When that pastor sat me down and said, you know, Steve, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, it must have took an hour and a half for that to sink in. I thought, wait a minute. I know my brother is a sinner. He's an alcoholic. So I'm thinking, wow, but I'm not that way. I don't need this. And it was only until God opened my eyes and I realized, wait, the standard isn't these other people. The standard is God. And God is holy, as we've been singing about this morning. God is holy, beloved, and we are not. The only way that we can tap into that holiness is through the the, the grace and mercy of God given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And he wants them to know that. He wants them to know that, you know what, you're not going to get there the way you think you're going to get there. And then he says there in verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness. John was a righteous man. And you didn't even believe him, he says in verse 32, because of the hardness of their heart. Then it says, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, Saw what? Saw the change in the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Saw the change in people's lives. Saw the lame healed. Saw the blind healed. Saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Even when you saw that, you did not afterward change your minds, which means to repent and believe him. Authority from heaven questioned. Where are you at today? Are you sitting here this morning saying, oh, well, yeah, I'm just going to come to church and be religious. Got to check in. Or has God brought you to the bottom of the barrel? Has God brought you to a point of change in your life, a point where you need to cry out for His mercy and His grace, knowing that you're totally undone. There's no other way for you to deal with your sin other than cry out to a holy God who is ready and willing to forgive you based on the sacrifice of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You look around and you see the change in people's lives. You look around this world system and you see how things are lining up. You see, you read the Bible. You know, we've got a prophecy conference coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm excited because I can't wait to what Dr. Hawking is going to share with us because I know it's, it's going to be closer than it was two years ago when he was here. For the Lord's return. This is not a game. This is very serious business, beloved. And are you just sitting idly by questioning the authority of Jesus Christ? Allowing your heart to be hardened more and more and more. To the point where, you know what? God says, I just got to turn the lights out. I pray that's not the case. I pray that you will embrace a loving, gracious Savior who desires 
to see you in heaven one day. And not, he doesn't desire that you go to hell, a place of torment, a place that's totally removed from the holiness of God. It's not going to be a party down there. It's going to be utter darkness. It's going to be a place, the Bible says, that is just horrific. If you've seen a horror film or something like that, it's, it's nothing like that. It's a billion times worse. Think of the worst thing that could happen to you. And then multiply that times a million. That's what hell's going to be like. And I don't know why anybody in their right mind would want to go there. Especially when our God has provided through the Lord Jesus Christ a way out, an escape by his grace. No man, no man should know the wrath of God. No man should fall under the wrath of God. But those who are unbelievers, those who refuse the authority of Christ in their lives will be condemned. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would work as only you can in the hearts of the people here. I want to ask you this question this morning. Jesus didn't need to be approved by anybody. He didn't need to quote anybody. He didn't need any authorization from the religious leaders to do what he did. He spoke, the Bible says, and he did exactly what God told him to do. And over and over again, as we've worked our way through this gospel, he's revealed himself. To the people in his day, as he even has done to us, as we've read the words on the page, through his word, through his power. You've heard the message. You've seen the transforming power of Christ in the lives of others. I pray to God that you don't stand with these religious leaders who willfully reject in spite of all that they've heard and all that they've seen. It's unbelievable to me. I pray that you would open your heart to Christ, that you would embrace Him as Savior, as Lord, as Master King. Truly was a day of judgment for Jerusalem that day. And the judgment came. They lost their temple. They lost everything. I pray that you would not enter into judgment because of your unbelief. Father, we thank you for the message. We pray that you would open the hearts of the people within the hearing of this message. And Lord, we pray that you would transform hearts, cause them to repent, to turn to you for your grace and your mercy. For us who know you, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be reminded that this is not a religious game that we're playing, that there's people out there in a lost and dying world who are quickly on their way to hell. And Father, you have given to us the glorious gospel of Christ to be proclaimed not only with our lips, but with our lives as well. And Father, that we would take this message that we've heard even today, take it out into the highways and byways and 
that we would trust you for the results, that we would see people come to you, be converted, be saved from their sin. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.